0: This is a picture of Anatoly. He's a 26-year-old member of the Urban Bible Church in Ukraine. His last act on earth was carrying the suitcase of a young mother and her two children as they raced across a collapsed bridge. All four died when a bomb landed nearby. After evacuating his wife Diana and his family members to Poland, Anatoly returned to help his church minister to people. His pastor said this, Anatoly was deeply spiritual with a good Christian character. When he saw a need, he tried to help. We miss him very much. It's a tragedy for his family and the church. And then the pastor said these words, God has a plan beyond our understanding, but it is difficult. So on Tuesday, our pastoral team met and we prayed for churches and for ministries in the Ukraine. And after we heard about Anatoly, I asked this question. Would we stay and serve our church and our community if we were bond? Well, none of us said anything as the weight of that question settled on our souls. Well, for sure, we all wanted to say yes, but we didn't want to do so flippantly. The pastor added these words, the most important task for the church right now is to continue preaching. Churches have become a lighthouse of hope. So on our end, we're going to keep preaching, we're going to keep praying, and we're going to keep providing help so churches in the Ukraine can continue to be lighthouses of hope. And if you're looking for a way to help, and my guess is you are, and perhaps you don't know how to do that, uh, we recommend directing your generosity to Samaritan's Purse. Samaritan's Purse has already set up a field hospital in the Ukraine. They've been partnering with 3,200 churches inside Ukraine. And as conflict erupted, they were in the process of distributing 600,000 Operation Christmas Child gift-filled shoeboxes. And I wonder if some of you filled those shoeboxes. They're in contact with ministry partners and meeting needs as they're able. So if God prompts you to give, simply go to samaritanspurse.org to donate. Well, in addition, we've been praying for a family from Ukraine by name the last couple weeks, and we just received word that they miraculously received their visas to come to the United States, and they will be resettling here in the Quad Cities. Yeah. So we rejoice with Sasha and his, hu- and his wife, Sophia, along with their children, Lucas, four, and Emma, one. That's the age of some of our grandchildren. And as we hear of their needs, we'll share them with you. Late yesterday afternoon, I received a text from Mark Drake. Uh, Mark and Sarah know this family in the Ukraine. They've been in their home. This family left the Ukraine, went to Poland, and now they're in Germany. Get this. Here's an example of God's providence. They're sitting here in a restaurant in Germany. Their meal was purchased by a flight attendant from Chicago who just happened to be in Germany. And Mark and Sarah told her how to get in contact with this family, it shows how God works his ways and his will through his people. Well, we're nearing the end of our journey through the book of Acts, and last week we were in Acts chapter 24, and we discovered this truth, when your faith is challenged, and it will be, and it has, defend what you believe cheerfully. One of the keys to understanding the Bible, Jason Crosby has been teaching this in his growth group elective, is to identify the literary genre of the book or the section of scripture that you're studying. And There's different genres in the Bible, like apocalyptic, that would be the book of Revelation and parts of the book of Daniel, biography, exposition, parable, Poetry, prophecy, and narrative. So this week, when I began studying Acts chapter 25, I wondered what kind of message God would have for us this weekend. You see, this passage of Scripture is story. I struggled to find a preaching outline. And then it hit me that over 40% of the Bible is made up of narrative. And we know from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that every word of the Bible is inspired, it's inerrant, it's important, and it's instructive. All scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that, here's the result, that the man of God may be complete. Complete equipped for every good work. So God wants us to live out what we're going to learn from this passage so that we can do the good work he's called us to do, all to bring glory to him. And so here's our main idea for today. God providentially accomplishes his purposes through people. Now, since narratives, by their nature, contain characters, here's how we're going to approach this section. We're going to approach this passage through the perspective of the individuals that we come across. And I decided to give them nicknames to help us remember and even to see ourselves in the story. First, we're going to be introduced to Festus. We could say Festus was a people pleaser. And then we'll be introduced to the religious leaders. They were status keepers. They didn't want anything to change. And then we'll see the Apostle Paul. We'll call him the gospel preacher. And then we're introduced to a couple, Agrippa and Bernice. Uh, We could call them the pleasure seekers. And then we see throughout this passage, throughout Scripture, Jesus, the life changer. Well, let's look now at Acts chapter 25. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, take that as our gift to you. Let's look at verses 1 through 6. We're introduced now to a new governor. So last week we were introduced to Felix. This is the new guy on the scene. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. So Festus became governor after Felix flamed out. If Felix was a procrastinator. Festus was a proactive people pleaser. So he quickly realized that the mood was tense in the country, in large part because of the Apostle Paul, who was a prisoner in Caesarea. So wanting to get on the good side of the Jewish leaders, he traveled from Caesarea, which would be the political center, down to, or often you'll hear in Scripture, up to Jerusalem because the elevation, but he traveled 70 miles from Caesarea to Jerusalem, which was the religious center. And when he arrived, the religious leaders bring up all of these charges against Felix's leftover prisoner named Paul. After hearing the charges against Paul, Festus was urged to send Paul to Jerusalem. Why? So they could ambush and kill him on the way. Now, just a short time ago, actually it was two years earlier, there were a group of 40 men lying in ambush to kill Paul. Here we see it's the religious leaders who want to ambush and take Paul out. Instead, Festus told them that these religious guys could travel to Caesarea and bring their charges against Paul there. Now we see more evidence of his people-pleasing. Would you observe verse 9? But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Well, here's some questions for all of us to ponder. Are you a people pleaser. Let me ask it this way. Do you fear man or do you fear God? Paul settled this in Galatians 1 verse 10. He says, for am I now seeking the approval of man? Is that what I'm after? Or am I seeking to approve God? And he says, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. He summarized who he served, 1 Thessalonians 2.4. So we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. And so what about you? What about me? Are we out to please God or to please others? Now, interestingly, even people-pleasers can't stop God from working his way and his will, but it's much better to settle whose approval we are ultimately seeking because God providentially accomplishes his purposes through people. Let's look next. There's another group of people. We could call them the religious, and they were the status keepers. Religious leaders are more interested in keeping the spiritual status quo than they were in discovering what was true. Let's pick up the narrative in verse 7, when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. That phrase, stood around him, means to surround in a menacing way like a pack of ravenous wolves. And would you note, they, they accused Paul of various serious crimes. That reminds me of what was said of Jesus, Luke 23.10. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. Drop down to verse 24 where we read what Festus said about these religious status Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about, the, about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. The phrase, this man, reminds us of what Pilate said about Jesus in John 19, 5. He looks to the crowd and he says, Behold the man. The word shouting means they were crying out, they're yelling, they're demanding. They want Paul to be put to death. They even use a double negative, that he ought not to live any longer. Well, What does this show us? Well, it shows us the implacable hardness of the human heart. So here's what happens. When people refuse to submit to the Lord, they often seek to either attack or eliminate Christianity. Why? Well, so they can keep living the way they want to live. We see that in John 3, and this is the judgment, words of Jesus, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed okay let's personalize this what what about you as you do an inventory of your own life are you kind of settled with the status quo the spiritual status quo or are you legitimately and earnestly seeking truth maybe you've become spiritually lazy you're like i i don't really care maybe you're finding ritual has replaced a vibrant relationship with Christ. Or, or maybe you just get really threatened when someone around you brings up spiritual matters. Friends, God providentially accomplishes his purposes through people. Now, in the midst of that, we're introduced to Paul, the gospel preacher. Hey, how many of you have felt these last two years with COVID have been difficult? I mean, anyone? Yeah. This week I saw a post on Facebook which read this way, two years ago, this was our last normal week and nobody knew it. While some, these last two years, have felt perhaps imprisoned, isolated, others have become defeated, depressed, angry, agitated. What made me think of the Apostle Paul, would you notice he spent two years in prison and yet he presented his defense in verse 8 without any bitterness, without any anger. He simply stated it this way, Verse 8, Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. He holds firm, drop down to verses 10 and 11, but Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I've done no wrong. And you yourselves know very well, if then I'm a wrongdoer and I've committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to the charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Now, That appeal marks the rest of the book of Acts, which we're almost finished walking through, as we'll see that Paul now makes his journey to Rome in the final chapters where he will present the gospel to the emperor. Paul is so committed to taking the gospel to Rome that he appeals his case to be heard by Caesar. Every Roman citizen had the right to appeal to Rome, especially if he felt he wasn't getting a fair hearing. And once an appeal was made, he'd be sent to Rome accompanied by Roman protection along with a statement of facts of his case. And once an appeal was made, it was irrevocable. Now as we've seen in the book of Acts, Paul was laser focused on God's Mission for him. Look at Acts 19.21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. The Lord confirmed this calling on Paul. Acts 23.11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And God calls us to be laser-focused, to be on mission, living out his purposes for our lives wherever he calls us to serve, regardless of what problems we encounter. You see, Paul saw his problems, his imprisonment, as a platform for ministry. This week, Beth and I talked to someone going through some very significant struggles. This individual shared how God has led her to the book of Joel, chapter 2, verses 25 and 26. Perhaps some of you have this underlined in your Bibles. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. You look back and you're like, man, that was a waste and that's gone. And what happened to that time? Or you live with regret for what you've done. You're like, oh, those are lost years. God says, I'll restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I... Sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never again be put to shame. And that led her to make this stunning statement of faith in the midst of the challenges she's facing. This is what she said God will work everything out for His glory and my ultimate good. Right on, sister. Let me ask you a question. As you process the problems that you have, and you have some, and some of you have many, and if you don't, just hold on, you will. (laughs) Are you seeking to give God glory And are you in the midst of those looking for gospel opportunities? Are you living on mission by striving to reach your neighbors and the nations for Christ? Are you willing to do whatever it takes to be a witness for Jesus? Are you willing to go or send others who are ready to go? You see, God providentially accomplishes his purpose through people. Number four, Agrippa and Bernice. We could call them the pleasure seekers. Verse 13 tells us Felix received some important dignitaries who had come to celebrate his installation. So he's the new governor, so now the king, Agrippa, and Bernice come to celebrate By the way, King Agrippa's great-grandfather was Herod the Great, also known as the Butcher of Bethlehem. His father was Herod Agrippa I, who murdered James and put Peter in jail. I mean, he's the guy who died because of his pride. His body turned into worm food. Now, I'll try to keep this PG-rated, but Bernice was his sister with whom he was in an incestuous relationship. Her first husband was her uncle. Bernice became the mistress of Emperor Vespasian and was also immorally involved with his son Titus. Titus was the emperor who destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70. And if you're following that dysfunctional family tree, you're like, man, I've heard part of this. Well, here's why. Because Drusilla DeVille, that's the nickname we gave her, we were introduced to her last weekend. She is also their sister. So here we see the decadence and the depravity of the human heart. The Roman culture was filled with unmitigated idolatry, extreme promiscuity unbridled anger, pervasive abuse, an onslaught of abortions. And friends, I fear we're headed down that same slippery slope today. You see, once a nation leaves its moral moorings, it goes adrift on the sea of relativism before it implodes under the accumulated weight of iniquity. More than 200 years ago, Edward Gibbon wrote a six-volume series called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. He spent 20 years studying the Roman Empire to find out how a nation that was so great suddenly was destroyed from the inside out. Interestingly, the first volume was published in 1776, the year our country was born. Now, Gibbon listed five primary reasons for the collapse. Number one, the undermining of the sanctity of the home, which is the basis of society. Number two, higher and higher taxes. You Must have been from Illinois. (laughs) And the spending of public money on bread and circuses. Number three, the mad craze for pleasure with sports becoming every year more exciting, and more brutal. Number four, the building of gigantic armies to fight external enemies while the deadliest enemy, the decadence of people, lay within. And would you note number five, the decay of religion, faith that was once vibrant, moving into mere form, losing touch with life and becoming impotent to guide it. Friends, this should be a sober warning to us because we are cycling through the same patterns which wrecked the Roman Empire. So here's Festus the new governor, he seeks the counsel of King Agrippa. He lays out the details of the case against Paul. Agrippa's intrigued. So in verse 22, he asked if Paul could be brought before him. So here's King Agrippa. He's like, I want to talk to Paul. Let's pick up the narrative in verse 23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice, his sister, came with great pomp, And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. So here's King Agrippa and Bernice, who found great pleasure in all the pomp. Why? Well, because they're narcissistic hedonists. They loved being on display much like many in our culture who parade on the red carpet. Well, here they march in wearing their royal purple robes. They're joined by all these military leaders. I'm sure the trumpets are sounding. All the rich and famous are there. The Greek word for pomp is the root of our word fantasy, meaning all this adulation would soon evaporate. And amidst this procession of this self-centered adulation, Paul, the prisoner, is brought in wearing a tattered tunic, the sound of chains around his wrists. He walks in slowly, but his eyes flash with power. Incidentally, This is the fulfillment of a prophecy given right after Paul's conversion. Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. Go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the, listen, three groups Gentiles and kings. He's before a king now, and the children of Israel. Next weekend, we're going to see how Paul took advantage of this time with Agrippa and Bernice as he lays out the gospel message before them. Well, let's bring it to where we live. And this could be an uncomfortable question to answer. Are you a pleasure seeker? Is that how you order your day, your week? you living for the weekend? Are you just seeking to have fun and make that next possession, take that next trip, that next event, that next thing out there that will bring you pleasure? Is that what's in the forefront of your mind? Are you all about pump? Are you all about partying? Are you living just for yourself? just to satisfy yourself while you secretly hope that one of these experiences, one of these people, one of these events, one of these substances will provide the satisfaction that you're looking for. Friends, be careful, because that is a very slippery slope. See, God providentially accomplishes his purposes through people. Let's look finally at Jesus Jesus, the life changer. There are countless characters in the storyline of Scripture, but the main character is Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord. He's the main person. He's the plot. He's the purpose of Scripture. Would you check out how Festus referred to Jesus in verse 19? Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion Notice what he says about Jesus and about a certain Jesus, this is so good, who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. (laughs) That word religion can refer to superstition or reverence depending on the context. These leaders, they believe Christianity is just superstitious while those who who know Christ through the new birth get to have a reverent relationship with the resurrected Lord of the universe. This phrase, a certain Jesus, means one specific Jesus. This certain Jesus was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. That word assert means promise, declare, affirm. The tense indicates Paul kept on asserting, kept on affirming the resurrection of Jesus Christ repeatedly. Now this is a convictional truth of Christianity, and it is a personal conviction of the apostle Paul, because if you remember in Acts chapter 9, he's on the way to Damascus to arrest Christians, to persecute Christians, and who meets him on the road? but the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Some time ago, I sat down and I read through the book of Acts to see how often the resurrection is found. And I simply put the letter R in the margin of the passages that I read. When I was done, I counted up all the R's. 27 times in 28 chapters, the resurrection is mentioned. And I was struck by how central the resurrection is to the gospel message. Here are just two verses from the opening chapters. Right off the bat, Acts chapter 1, verse 3. After his suffering, he, Jesus, showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Acts 4, with great power, the apostles continued what they do. They testified to what? The resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And much grace was upon them all. Wherever Paul went, he told them about the certainty of Jesus and the reality of the resurrection. When he was charged with crimes, when they would say things to him, he'd say, I didn't do that, but I do have a confession to make. I believe in the resurrection. And Paul summarized the charges leveled against him, Acts 24, 21. Concerning the resurrection of the dead, I'm being judged by you this day. In Acts twenty five twenty Festus called Caesar by a title emperor. That literally means Augustus. Perhaps you've heard that phrase, that word. Augustus means the revered or worshipped one. Would you note, he was at a loss how to investigate these questions. So to Festus, the resurrection didn't make sense. He had been taught how to handle an insurrection, but he didn't have a clue what to do with a resurrection. In verse 26, Festus called the emperor, My Lord, which shows he didn't understand the resurrection and the reign of the one and only specific Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is only one Lord. Missionary Hudson Taylor was fond of saying this, Christ is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. In a few weeks for Easter, our A preaching passage will be from 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Related to Easter, parents and grandparents, we have a free resource we'd love to put in your hands. This is designed to help you teach, equip, disciple your children and grandchildren about the Easter narrative and what it means that Jesus has been raised from the dead. It's filled with Bible study and activities. This is free to all of our families here if you take one per family for children 6th grade and under, and they're available out here in the South Lobby. So we've been introduced to some characters today. Here's how we're going to apply this. Which one or which ones represent you? Are you a people pleaser? Are you a status keeper? You're like, no, don't talk to me about that. I don't want to change. I'm happy just the way I am. Are you known as a gospel preacher? Or are you all out to seek pleasure? If you're not saved yet, today is your day to repent and receive the resurrected Jesus Christ and live under his reign. And when you do, you'll experience the life changer, Jesus Christ. You know, God is continuing to write his story through us as we live on mission for his glory. And God is still looking for people totally surrendered to his lordship. People in Ukraine and people right here in the Quad Cities. He longs for us to not only believe in the resurrection, but to live under his reign. And as a church, we're committed to gathering with God's people, growing in our faith, giving what the Lord has given to us, and then going with the gospel. Are you aware that one of the biggest impediments to people serving Christ cross-culturally is college debt? And many are eager and ready to go, but they can't go because of that burden. And I love how God raises up people to providentially accomplish his purposes so that others can go with the gospel to those who need to hear it. I'm going to ask Pastor Kyle uh, to come up now and tell
1: us more about that. Well, good morning, Edgewood. I want to introduce you to Luke Womack. He's with the GoFund, and uh, Matt as well, back here. And they came all the way from California to be here with us today. And they're going to share with us a little bit more about the GoFund and what it does in helping people get to the mission field. So, yeah, Luke, let's just start with that question. What is the GoFund, and how does it help people get to the mission field?
2: Sure. Yeah, and thanks for having us today. We're grateful to be here. And, um, yeah, Matt, about 12 years ago, I went to India, And uh, I was on a mission trip for a couple months, and it was pretty remarkable for me. Um, Even though I love the people, love the food, uh, it was a a great place to visit and kind of discover for the first time. um, I was really uh, struck by this reality, uh, this tragedy, really, uh, that as I encountered people day to day, there were people that were two, three times my age, and many of them uh, had never heard the gospel their entire lives. Mm -hmm. I mean, I heard it every single night as a kid. My dad would share Bible stories with us, and that really struck me. And so I was... I'm kind of awakened to this reality that there are 3 billion people in the world, about 40% of the world, that has little or no access to the gospel. Uh, Most of these people will be born, live their entire lives, and die, having no idea who Christ is or what he has done for them. And so I realized in that season, I want to do something about that. Why can we not bring the gospel to people like these? My father was a means of grace in my life, and I would love to be a means of grace in these people's lives, to give to them, uh, what God gave to me through my father. So I got back from that trip and uh, just tried to figure out why are missionaries not going there? Mm. And so I called a bunch of my peers, and um, a lot of them said student debt was the main reason they weren't going. So I'm thinking, gosh, this is pretty simple, right? If we just pay the student debt, they'll go overseas, um, as long as they're not bluffing. And we found out they weren't bluffing. Um, so I started the GoFund around 2014 um, with the ambition just to pay off student debt for these missionaries. And so by God's grace, we've been able to do that. Uh, For the last uh, eight years or so. And uh, so far, uh, we've been able to help quite a few missionaries uh, get to the field by paying their student debt. And the reason we're here today uh, is because there's one of your very own uh, who's going out soon, and we're able to help her with her student debt um, as a way to play our part um, in helping to send her. And I'll just mention this as well Uh, The GoFund, as a nonprofit organization, we don't send anybody,
1: Mm -hmm.
2: you do the sending. The church does all the sending. We just want to get behind churches as a parachurch organization with church. We want to get behind churches as they do the sending of their own missionaries. We're just meeting a need that most churches can't meet um, in paying off the student debt piece. So we're playing our part, uh, but we're deeply grateful for you. And we just want to be here today to say thank you to you for playing your part. Uh, We're honored to come alongside you as this um, young lady goes out to the field.
1: Yeah, I know it's such an amazing ministry and I love your heart and what you're doing. Hey, talk to me just a minute about numbers. How many missionaries have you all sent out? How much student debt have you all actually assumed and paid off?
2: Yeah, so uh, so far we've been able to partner with 88 missionary uh, units. So that would be uh, a single would be one unit, a family with three kids would be one unit. So we partnered with 88 units, and so far we've committed to paying off uh, $4.6 million in student debt for those 88. <laughs> Thanks. So that's about $52,000 per uh, missionary unit. And, um, yeah, for us, this isn't about dollars and cents, right? Uh, the student debt is just a, a barrier, and it's a real one. Mm-hmm. It's, for many, the only thing preventing them from making it to the field. And I should mention, too, the average college graduate today takes 21 years to pay off their student debt. So by the time they pay off their student debt and, and actually get to the point where they're thinking about going to the field, it's highly unlikely that they actually make it at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe they have a couple of kids, they have a mortgage, they have you know, a couple of cars. None of these are bad things at all, uh, but it's unlikely they make it to the field. So for us, we're wondering what, what's going to happen to that missing generation if the student debt piece um, isn't taken care of. So by God's grace, uh, we're, we're able to add one more uh, to the mix uh, with your church and, and hopefully add quite a few more this year.
1: Yeah. Hey, one more question. Um, this new thing you're doing, going to church, is kind of a new initiative that you guys are, are, are up to. And so, um, they've maybe just gone to a couple of churches going, starting to share a little more about what you do. So tell me of the heart behind that. What is kind of, uh, the, the driving force to you guys coming and getting in front of churches more and seeing that partnership?
2: Yeah, for us, we really do want to emphasize uh, that the GoFund isn't the church. Now, yeah. myself and everyone on our team, we're a part of local churches. So we step into that seat as members of those local churches. Our churches are sending out, yeah. uh, but at the GoFund, we never want to feel like, oh, we're a replacement for the church. So part of it is for us to remind us, if we detach ourselves from the local church, we're completely missing the point. Mm. Uh, but the, the other piece of it is for you, uh, so that you know, hey, you have a job to do. And we're not doing the whole thing. In fact, if a, a missionary gets to the field, and they call us like for, for soul care, they're, in a, um, they're having an issue overseas, they need help with, they need counseling, we're going to say, our first question is going to be, have you talked to your church? Yeah. Because your church is the one who sent you Your church should be the one caring for you. Now, we care for you. We love you. We're paying your student debt as an expression of that. Uh, But what we have a job to do, we believe God has called us as a nonprofit to pay off the student debt. Uh, But your job is to do the sending. So what does that mean? Well, that means financially you're funding this person, right? It means that you're caring for this person. You're praying for them as they're overseas. You're keeping engaged with their story. What's going on on the field? Uh, When they come back, you're keeping them in your home. When they're on furlough, you're feeding them. Uh, you're letting them stay in your home for free as a blessing to them, asking them, what do you need? Do you need to be with us? Do you need to be alone? How can we best serve you? Uh, my, my prayer for you and my admonition to you is that you would uh, care so well for this missionary partner that she would feel like as if she never left. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, she's not disconnected. I beg you, don't forget her. Do not forget that this young gal has gone to the field as an extension of Edgewood Baptist Church. Would you make her feel that, make her feel loved and cared for? Because there's going to be pains for her that she hasn't even considered yet or realized yet, and she's going to need you as a church uh, to be holding the road for her as she goes. So that's the reason we come yeah. out and do this, to encourage you in your role and to remind ourselves of our own role.
1: Yeah, no, I love it. And that's one of the reasons we're here to celebrate with this young lady that's going to be going out. And at this time, we're actually going to shut down our live stream so that we can talk to her uh, freely and one of the reasons we do that is because where she's going can be a hostile region in the world and so we want to kind of protect her identity from online things